action! Welcome to Now Playing Review of Ace Attorney. Part of Now Playing's video game movie review series. Hosted by Justin, Stuart, and Arnie. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. Today we're discussing Ace Attorney, starring Hiroki Nariyama, Mariki Kiritani, Takumi Saito, directed by Takashi Miike. This is the now playing co-host against which you can have no objection, Arnie. And this is Justin. And Stuart. Here we are in the arcade, and I gotta ask... Have either of you heard of Ace Attorney, Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney? Not only have I never heard of this title, again, I didn't include this. Originally, when I was culling all of the films ever made from a video game, I'm like, never heard of this, no. Well, when I'm looking at this game, lawyer, video game, you're a lawyer, you're going to do (laughs) legalese on your PlayStation. Like, this blew my mind. Justin, had you heard of it? You know, I never have heard of it, but I was actually kind of surprised. My son Tyler plays a lot of games, and I told him that we were reviewing this. He he got really excited. He's like, I love that game. I'm like, you've heard of that game? <laughs> See, I, I'm all ears. Arnie, you played it. I have played lawyer games before. I remember in the 90s, I went to some tech show, and there were some games there that you don't find on the shelves of Best Buy, and it was like law and order type game where you were the lawyer you had one case it was all photo real very pixelated but photo real and i didn't know though that there were others and that this was a major hit series kind of like monster hunter we're dealing with a series that is really really big in japan mm-hmm. and also has been released elsewhere Like Yakuza, which is the other video game that was adapted to a movie by Takashi Miike. What's funny is I've actually played Ace Attorney in Ultimate Marvel vs. Capcom 3. I was wondering why the hell this guy in a suit called Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney was a combatant in Marvel vs. Capcom. But, you know, I don't know all these Capcom games. You just hit a memory bubble in the back of my brain, Arnie. Like, I totally forgot about that, but you're right. He was in Capcom versus Marvel. In his final move, he actually calls Galactus to the witness stand. It's pretty funny. (laughs) (laughs) I love that that's how he's going to fight. I actually thought that's how it would be. Would be a lawyer, yes, but like when you're cross-examining, it would be with swords. You know, like it would be like fencing, but you're also talking about a case. But that's not it, I assume. No, this is an old-school adventure game, and by adventure, I mean King's Quest, Gabriel Knight, Leisure Suit Larry, where you walk through areas, talk to people, it's not really an action game, and those were still big in Japan. Here we call them adventure games, over there they often called them visual novels, and there were a few specific genres that were successful, Fantasy games, you know, like King's Quest and the such, sci-fi, horror, or 
And this just shows the cultural differences. Dating simulations. (laughs) (laughs) I like to go walking on beaches, too. (laughs) I'm not getting laid tonight. I mean, the closest I think we have to that is Leisure Suit Larry. But over there, it's like a whole genre. Yeah, I wouldn't say that that's the way you learn how to date, but yes, I guess I kind of get it conceptually. So this is not limited to the courtroom. When you play it, you're not just putting people on the stand and talking to them. Mostly you are. This came out when the adventure games or visual novels were starting to lessen in popularity in Japan. And creator Shu Takami, in 2001, he was working for Capcom. He'd worked on the Dino Crisis series. And he'd had a pet project he wanted to do with a visual novel with attorneys. He started off with wanting to do it with private detectives, but ended up moving it to attorneys. And you are this brand new attorney, and you're in court, you're cross-examining, and you have to use your brain. It's a lot of logic puzzles in that you have the evidence, you examine the evidence, and then you're cross-examining a witness on the stand, and you have to find where they're telling something that contradicts the evidence. Mm -hmm. And then when you find that, you yell, OBJECTION! And man, I got so sick of hearing that OBJECTION! (laughs) Every time I'd push the button, I'd hear OBJECTION in this game. I played it for hours. It's actually kind of fun. And then beyond the first case, which is almost a tutorial of how to play the game, you've got your boss there giving you hints on what to do and things. The second case is your boss gets killed and you have to go to crime scenes and kind of look around the crime scenes, find the evidence, examine evidence, and then go into the courtroom. It's not much beyond that. It's look at the crime scene, go into court, talk to the witnesses, find the holes in their story. What's shocking, just outright shocking, is the first game has four court cases and three of them are this movie. It is a literal translation. I've thought about that so many times, especially when dealing with games like Uncharted or The Last of Us, which is becoming a series, I believe. They have such great stories already that that's what inspires people to make a movie of them. But then you can't make a movie directly of the game's story because people already know that story from playing the game. Cut the cutscenes together, there's your movie. Yeah. But here, this is the closest I've ever seen. This is, the characters look just like they do in the game. The hairstyles are just like they are in the game. Oh, the hair, man. Mm. (laughs) Awesome. Everything is straight out of the game, which is funny. It is a comedic game. It has its moments where like your best friend is Larry Butts Mm -hmm. and he gets mistaken for Harry Butts. I mean, there's puns and jokes, but it is also a legal series. This year is its 20th anniversary. We couldn't be reviewing it at a better time. And there's a whole bunch of games in this series. There's the original Phoenix Wright trilogy, There's a whole bunch of spinoffs, including one that goes back and takes place in the late 19th century with Sherlock Holmes. Wow. Okay. I mean, this sounds cool. Honestly, what you describe and the games you've referenced that sort of came out of are ones that I enjoyed playing. I enjoy a little bit of like detecting. Like, I don't necessarily need it to be 
you running around shooting all the time. So if it's a mystery and puzzles, if you break up the action in Tomb Raider style and you're sometimes doing things and sometimes just putting it together... What did you call it? A living novel? A visual novel. Okay, yeah. I think that's my style of game. I think that sounds cool. You liked it? I did, actually. You know, I also like that style of game, kind of a throwback thing. I also enjoy action games and shooting games, but I think I grew up playing this type of adventure game. I do want to thank one of our listeners, Evan, because... Obviously, none of us are Japanese. We're going to have a bit of a cultural barrier with a Japanese game and a Japanese movie, not understanding all the nuances. And he wrote in, let us know that actually all of the humor, the gameplay, is an indictment and criticism of the Japanese court system. Mm, Yeah, I never want to stand trial in Japan for anything. For the most minor infraction, the way they use circumstantial evidence to, like, send you to the slammer. It's It's amazing in this movie. Apparently, there's just huge corruption, a lot of injustice to force fake confessions. He calls it a hostage justice system. It's basically guilty until proven innocent, and almost 100% of the cases that go to trial end in a guilty verdict. Again, what I get from this movie is like it's the speed of it. It's like no sooner have you taken the stand than they're, they're banging the gavel and saying it's over. Yeah, even the ones who are found not guilty, according to Evan, are looked at as you just got off. Kind of the way we look at OJ is, oh, you just got lucky. You just fell through the cracks there. You should be in jail. <laughs> That's every innocent verdict in Japan. And so this is a bit of a stinging indictment of that and looking at, you know, a good defense attorney, a kind-hearted... Noble. Yeah, well, there's no doubt about it that this thing comes from Japanese culture. And and (laughs) as I dove into this, I did a little digging myself. I didn't play any of the games or see it, but just to try and get familiar, I, I found that there are, of course, mangas, stage plays and musicals. That musical was amazing. I saw some of it on YouTube. (laughs) I didn't go there, really. I I mean, again, I can imagine it, I suppose. You know, it's probably got a delicious popsicle. In Japanese culture, something's a hit. You have it do everything, right? You know, gavels. I know I want some of these waistcoats and ruffled shirts. Like, amazing hair products. (laughs) You got to believe Phoenix Wright, like, hair gel and wax, going to be a big seller. But I stuck with the anime. There is, I think, probably just a straight-up adaptation of the video game storylines told in episodic format, almost 60 hours of content. I watched the first season, and it is. Thank God I did this. Because I don't know how I would have gotten through this movie without some foreknowledge. It is a linear and easy-to-follow telling of the story we're here to talk about in this Takashi Miike movie. Oh, good. So you can help guide us through this, because this is a twisting, plotting story that doesn't reveal itself completely until the final. I think that is entirely the fault of its director. And we've seen him do this before. Yakuza didn't have to be that confusing of a movie. Takashi Miike loves to make it hard for you to follow what the hell is going on. He'd rather have you stunned of all the shock and outrage. The way he just throws things at you. Crazy making. But the surprise here is Takashi Miike, at this point, I think he's made over a hundred films. I've seen probably a dozen of them. And all of them are ultra-violent. This film is rated G. (laughs) This is him saying, I'm going to make a family film. I'm not going to do scatological and pornographic. 
or violent. I gotta say, when I was expecting Takashi Miike and thinking about the films of his I've seen, specifically Yakuza, I think of over-the-top violence and ultra-gore and things like that, and I didn't know how he would adapt this game I never expected it to be faithful, though. I was just stunned for the first, like, hour of the movie. Like, you're just telling the game. He takes liberties. I, I will say, at least in terms of the anime, there are characters that pop up in here that have different purposes in the storyline. But it almost feels like someone probably handed him a really good script and he said, yeah, whatever. I got to make another movie next week. Again, this man is super prolific. I don't think he expends a whole lot of energy on any one particular project. He likes to create confusion, have the editor and you figure it out. It worked for me with Yakuza. Uh, we'll talk about how it works here. I do want to point out this thing was not a hit. You say in Japan the game is huge. This thing made the equivalent of about $6 million in theaters. The same year Resident Evil 5 came out and made $45 million and was one of the top 10 box office. So video game movies were big in Japan, but this one kind of had a, a middling reaction, which is probably why we don't have movies adapting the sequels. You know, again, looking at it just in Japan, not looking at it as an American release, it did fine in Japan and got good reviews from Japanese critics. American critics, not so much. <laughs> exactly. This is the thing. If you go to Wiki, I mean, I went everywhere trying to find some information. Some will tell you, and this gave me hope, that this is the best video game adaptation to movie ever made. I don't know if I believe that totally, but I definitely sat down thinking I was going to see something amazing, and I wasn't wrong. <laughs> Arnie, why don't you give him this plot? Phoenix Wright is an undefeated defense attorney. Undefeated in that he successfully won his first and only case when his best friend, Larry Butts, had been charged with a murder he clearly didn't do. Wright's second case comes when his boss, Mia Fey, is murdered in their law office. She was hit in the head with a replica statue of Rodin's The Thinker. The chief suspect is Mia's younger sister, Maya, who happens to be a psychic. Wright's winning streak is unbroken, now two cases deep, as he proves in court the murderer wasn't Maya, but rather a reporter named Red White. Wright's victory means defeat for the prosecutor Miles Edgeworth, who himself had a perfect record of prosecutions until the case against Wright. The two in-court adversaries become unlikely allies, however, when Edgeworth is charged with murder of fellow lawyer Robert Hammond. Due to his history as a prosecutor, Edgeworth cannot find any defense attorneys to represent him, except Phoenix Wright, his old grade school friend. The prosecutor in this case is Edgeworth's mentor, Manfred von Karma. Von Karma has a 40-year streak of prosecutions without a single case lost. Wright goes above and beyond in investigating the case. In doing so, Wright uncovers an old man named Yanni Yogi. <laughs> These names. Yogi was a client of Von Karma's many years ago, having been charged with the murder of Gregory Edgeworth, Miles' father. Yogi was actually innocent, but to keep his winning streak unbroken, Von Karma had Hammond convince Yogi to plead guilty by reason of insanity. All these years later, someone sent Yogi a gun and a note to get revenge on those who ruined his life with his false confession. It was Yogi, not Edgeworth, who killed Hammond. But this in-court revelation opens another cans of worms. If Yogi really didn't kill Miles' father, who did? In court, Miles confesses to this murder. 
Miles' father had been fighting with Yogi in the evidence locker. Miles, then just a boy, threw a gun at Yogi. The gun went off, and all these years later, Miles believed the gun's accidental fire killed his father. Wright realizes this isn't true. That rogue bullet actually hit a fourth person in the evidence locker, Von Karma himself. Von Karma then picked up the gun and murdered Miles' father. Von Karma denies this, but a metal detector finds the bullet still lodged in Von Karma's shoulder. Von Karma admits to the murder and is arrested, and Miles is found innocent. He and Wright now have great respect for each other, as they will continue to be adversaries in court as credits roll. Normally, we might want to start with the first scene, walk you through how it's all introduced. I think that would be a terrible, terrible injustice to listeners to try and follow this movie in the scattershot way that it fires its plot points and scenes at you. Let's just look at this again as a puzzle. And I want to ask you guys, do you enjoy the process of trying to untangle what's going on in this movie? I don't mind it, to be honest with you, because... Coming into this, I was unfamiliar with the game or the content at all. So the first 15 minutes, I was waiting for somebody named Ace to show up on screen to be our protagonist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know some listeners are wondering where Jim Carrey is. Don't you know? Like, they only saw the title and they thought something that they're not going to get. Ace attorney, pet lawyer? Not coming. Sorry, guys. I enjoy the device of using the courtroom to continually unravel more and more of this mystery that eventually ties together. At first, it seems all kind of disparate until you realize everything funnels into this one column that matters. Yeah, the DL6 case. I don't really think this film is that confusing with its timeline. I mean, this isn't memento here. It is a linear story told in the court system. However, when dealing with the cases, you then have to look at the history. And so as our hero, Phoenix Wright, finds out information, we find out information, and it's told to us visually in flashback, but a Nolan time-hopping film, this is not. Uh, it's a chronological. Uh, you will see flashbacks intercut with, like, murder scenarios. Like, two different murders from 15 years apart will be going on at the same time. There will be, like... And I'm talking 15-second <laughs> clips of a character running on and going, la, 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 and you won't want to want... I actually still don't know what the furry is doing. There's like a furry that disrupts a gavel at one point. I'll never understand what that was. <laughs> but I feel like there's all kinds of weirdness being inserted here and jumps in time. We'll see a woman intercut with testimony, and eventually you realize it's a dead wife. I, he makes it hard, in my opinion. I don't think that this is Perry Mason. One thing I'll give him credit for that made it easier for me to follow what's going on was in the flashbacks, the kids have the exact same hairstyles the adult characters do, <laughs> so you know who everybody is. <laughs> uh, these hairs, I just want to put it out there. How often do you see a movie, or anywhere in the world, where you see a hairstyle you've never seen before? Like, if you want to be a badass, screw this mohawk thing. Like, if you truly want to be a fashion rebel, I dare you to do Phoenix Wright. Like, that hair is... <laughs> Amazing. The duck butt. <laughs> yes, it is a duck butt. That is true. And everyone is dressed like they're auditioning for Prince or something. Like the ruffle collars, <laughs> the like candy colored waistcoats and stuff. Like it kind of feels comic book. I don't know if I would have said, oh, this looks like a video game movie, but it does kind of feel like Dick Tracy a little bit. It is styled exactly like it is 
in the video game. The colors, the judge with his super long beard. Oh, I love that beard. The game looks like an anime. Understand that this game, 2001, it came out for mobile first in the United States. It's not 3D. It's like comic panels. And it looks very anime in its style. And the way they've recreated it here really is amazingly good. I couldn't believe it. It's, I instantly know every character because they look like they hopped directly off that video game screen. You're talking more about like printed manga as opposed to the anime that I watched. Which, yeah. Again, yes, I agree. Same stylization used there. Same cases. Can we just start with the case that really matters? There is something that happened 15 years before the events of this movie that I think is helpful to lay out before we talk about the tangled three cases all connected to that case that we go through. DL6 case. I don't even know why it has that name. I couldn't figure that out either. I just assumed it was like a docket number. Okay, yeah. It could just be a random whatever. The point is, it was a murder trial. And a man named Gregory Edgeworth was losing this case to a prosecutor that, again, 40 years, never got anything wrong, Manfred von Karma, and it all came down to the ballistics. And we're told that this defense lawyer went down to the evidence room, looked like he was messing with the bullet evidence, was accused by this bailiff, Yanni Yogi, and a gun went off, and Greg ended up shot in the back and dying. That's kind of the setup. When they talk about the DL6 case, they're really talking about the fact that we had a defense lawyer that died in the evidence room 15 years ago. Okay, and so here's where it gets really crazy. You tell me that you, someone explained to you Japanese court systems. They let spirit mediums decide, like someone can come in there in a trance, roll her eyes and have green smoke come out of her medallion and say, you did it and you're going up the river? <laughs> I mean, there's corrupt and then there's crazy. And yeah, what we're to believe is that because they were trying to figure out who shot Greg in the evidence room, they hired a spirit medium named Misty Faye, who uh, her daughters are there as children. They will play a big part in the future. She like did her little thing and said that that bailiff did it. The guy that caught the lawyer going through the bullets, got a gun and shot him in the back. Basically, we could get into the finer details as we get in the movie, but that's what they're talking about. Yanni Yogi shot Gregory Edgeworth in the evidence room while he was tampering with bullet ballistics. Meanwhile, Greg had this little son named Miles, who in grade school comes to the defense of our main character, Phoenix Wright. Okay, I do have one question, point of clarification here. So I understand the DL6 case. The major crime that we're trying to solve is who killed Gregory. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. Okay. But what was the trial that they were performing on? What was the crime for that trial in which he was tampering with the evidence? Does that trial matter? I don't think it matters in of itself other than the prosecutor prides himself on never losing a case. And you find out the reason why is because he tampers with evidence. So I don't think that the circumstances of that murder trial matter. It matters that Von Karma was the prosecutor. The first time we see that flashback, it's more of a perspective of, oh, 
Edgeworth was tampering with evidence. I think in the second flashback where it's more clarifying, I think it's showing that he might have been investigating it because he was wondering where this gun came from out of nowhere on the final day of trial. Correct. He was actually exposing the tampering that already had been done. But we'll get into that when we get into that. I just think it's helpful to know any of this before we hit play. (laughs) I mean, like, honestly, that's how hard this movie was for me. And I also want to point out that Greg has a son who was there in court, watched it, went down to the evidence room, may have been a participant when all of the shooting went down, and at the same time is attending grade school with our main character, Phoenix Wright, as a child. And we have this important flashback here also of how Miles first came to defend. His first case, really, was getting Phoenix off from stealing lunch money. Which is interesting, because Miles is a prosecutor, but here he was defending Phoenix, who was just being assumed guilty for stealing lunch money. That, at the very last scene we're going to find out, it was his friend Larry who actually stole the lunch money. (laughs) Yeah, this is a stand-by-me moment. This is how they became friends. We have three people that are not alike in any way. We have Miles, who is really uptight. And if you watch the anime, you see his lawyer dad never lets him play with toys and very studious and all of that. Phoenix, who's sort of the... The weird kid, again, look at the duck butt hair, <laughs> like, you know, he's oh, he's odd. <laughs> and because he stand accused and someone came to his defense, he said, I want to be a defense lawyer. And then you have, like, the class clown, who, as Arnie has pointed out already, is the one that stole the lunch money. And by the way, I did the calculations. 3,800 yen is 32 bucks. Who has who spends that on lunch? I don't spend that on lunch now. <laughs> I think it was the collective classes. Oh, okay. okay. That I can believe. And I guess you don't use Uber Eats because by the time you add in all those fees, your McDonald's is $32. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. I have not used those services. But anyway, the point is, yes, he stands up on his desk and this like guy with this goofy blonde hair says, I love you, Phoenix. When he could actually be honest and say, I'm the one that took it and take the fall. But instead, he just stands by uh, Phoenix and says, you know, I'm your friend. And so we have three people that should be lifelong friends. When we jump to present day, they're kind of at odds. Well, Larry and Phoenix are still really good friends. That's why Phoenix is handling Larry's cases. And I may be getting a little confused in the game, but in the game, it specifically said, Larry's a friend of mine, so I'm doing this case as a favor for Larry. Yeah, it's his first case. I think it's important to realize Phoenix Wright is a rookie. He's never gone into the court system before. And his very first one, if you really want to know the whole story here, it's just a scene with a guy who rips a wig off his head and foams at the mouth. If you want to know this case that Larry is involved in, accused of, watch the pilot episode. It's only 22 minutes of the anime. It'll break it down for you. Or play the tutorial mission of the game, it will also break it down for you. (laughs) In the movie, I think it plays as somewhat of a funny joke that doesn't hit you until later when he wins that lower court case. Because they're in a smaller courtroom and, you know, the judge isn't up higher and all that stuff. So when he wins, there's a a girl there showering him with little bits of confetti, which, okay, whatever. But what we see later on in the higher court when you win a case, it's all a laser show and digital confetti and all this stuff comes down. (laughs) You wonder if that real. Again, that did feel like satire. It did feel like, boy, if I understood more about Japanese culture, I would appreciate more of these digs. But the Japanese can do some pretty unorthodox things. Like, maybe they do shower you with confetti when you win. (laughs) 
Let us know. Write in and tell us. Send your favorite snapshot. Or give us a thinker statue. Because the, truly, the person that wins this is not Phoenix Wright. It's his boss, Mia Fey, who is the daughter of the spirit medium involved in that case we already broke down. She will be rewarded. Larry will give her. He's a toy maker. He will give her a replica of Rodan's The Thinker statue, which is a murder tool by the end of it. It's going to be a big, important plot point because Mia's going to be killed next. But before we go there, it's worth pointing out what's Miles doing? What's the guy that defended Phoenix in childhood doing? He has the celebrity case. I don't think you would understand it watching this movie, but it's probably in the game and it's definitely in the anime. I think it, it plays a little bit like that on screen, even though I'm not certain what they're saying. Like You could tell that there's some sort of celebrity to it. The Silver Samurai mm-hmm. get up in the courtroom was some somewhat of a nod to that. In the anime, what happened is there's a Mighty Morphin kind of show and someone got killed. The guy that never gets killed, that's the Steel Samurai is his name, got killed on set and who did it. And it was three or four episodes to figure out how. And this dragon lady who's on the stand in this movie is the producer of that show who gets outed as the killer. Here, I don't know that that's, again, she's just kind of smoking her long cigarette and foaming at the mouth. People are just doing eccentric things. I think you understand early on that this is a heightened reality. Looney Tunes kind of things are happening in this court system. But Edgeworth has no respect. Like, he wins the case. He goes to Manfred von Karma and says, you're my mentor. I want to be like you. And the guy's like, you'll never be like me. And so Miles has a chip on his shoulder, even though he's his law career is going better than Phoenix. But yes, the statue of the thinker is also a clock, mm. and it was made by Butts, <laughs> given to Mia as a gift, and then Mia's going to be found dead. The thinker smashed her head in. Who's the murderer? And the other thing is that this toy, like, he sells it as it will give you an inspiration. Not only is it a clock, you turn the head, it'll tell you the time. But if you pray to it, they used to do this in Chinese restaurants. If you rub the Buddha's belly and like pray to it, it'll give you money. And so it will give you inspiration. Mia was praying to it to get inspiration on the DL6 case. She runs down to the evidence room to go pull that ballistics bullet And then someone picks up that thinker statue, conks her on the head, and yeah, we have our first case of three. Why is she working on the DL6 case? Isn't that like a long since solved case? You would think that people would be over it if someone pled insane and I did it. You wouldn't think that it would be lingering, but maybe because Mia's mother was involved and is the one that essentially fingered the wrong person and went missing... Maybe we're being told that she's trying to let a cold case come to light. Well, yeah, I think she's trying to lift the shame that has been bestowed upon their family because of her mother. It's not even really clear in the anime, but yes. And this is where the movie kind of gives us a little bit of, you know, a law and order or CSI vibe. We get to start seeing some ballistic evidence and we get to see some recreations of the crime scene on these cool laser projected holographic screens in the courtroom again i thought that's what this movie would be when phoenix is going to like call up an objection and like it's on a a screen that he can then throw across the room at miles who is of course prosecuting the case like i'm like oh this would this is a video game that is what you would do you would and miles is like so cool he just snaps he does (laughs) a simple snap and the screen flips back at him like that's pretty badass but it's only a little bit here 
this is where I feel Mike's bringing his sense of style because there's nothing like that in the game I played or any of the sequels that I saw some walkthroughs of. And it's the equivalent of how in the game you'd look at the evidence and examine the evidence. And instead of just holding it, this is far more visually dynamic. It's very Tony Stark. You know, if you think about this movie coming out in 2012, Iron Man 2 came out in 2010. Tony Stark had that trial where he'd throw screens up from his phone on takeover televisions and things. It makes me think of Mortal Kombat. Like, imagine if our law system was, you know, fights. And like, you know, like we're going to just literally cage match this shit. And the coolest lawyer, the one that can throw the most shade and circumstantial evidence. I just want to say, again, it's horrifying how people will be so quickly pinned the murderer based on like a falling lamp or like one little bit of thing. <laughs> like the, the evidence against Mia's sister, Maya, is that she was in the room. Someone across the street claims he saw it happen, and there's a receipt that they think Mia wrote the killer's name in blood on, and it says Maya. And so that's why they think they got her. And the way that this goes back and forth of of proving that it's not Maya is... It's funny if it's not true. If this is literally how the legal system works, horrifying. A difference from the game is this wiretapping reporter who had gone in to put a microphone in the telephone here he looks kind of like a modern day iggy pop yeah he's white for one thing he's an anglo actor yeah he looks like he's in a ramones cover band yeah Yes, very much so. Yes, that's very good. And he looks nothing like that in the game, but it was really a strange look. Everybody here looks like they've come out of different worlds. And they're not all dressed for the courtroom. I think that if everybody else is in regular suits and this guy's in a leather coat and everything, he'd be pretty hot. But again, he's terrible on the stand. Like, all right, so he's in a hotel across the street from Maya's office. Claims he looked over and saw this little spirit medium pick up the thinker thing and smash it on her sister's head. He calls it a clock. Phoenix rightly goes, how did you know that? Objection. How do you know that? I heard it ticking. Like that flies in a court of law. You are across the street with glass, panes of glass between you and you heard it ticking. It must be a clock. Horrifying. Yeah, this is the kind of stuff you're dealing with in the game. This is the easier level where you find really ridiculous claims. Well, easier if that were evident. That would be like, oh yeah, we're dismissing that. That makes no sense. Never mind the fact that this is a tabloid journalist. We'll find out has wiretapped Mia's office. I mean, that should discredit him in and of itself. Like there's a whole bunch put into a falling lamp and it turns out like the bloody receipt gets Maya off from this, but... Oh my God. Again, the fact that anyone could go up for these circumstantial evidence is Kafkin. Like, it is really horrifying to think that this is how justice would be put out there. Yeah, I wonder how much of this is, you know, I mean, it's all obviously heightened and somewhat fictionalized, but I wonder how much of this is reflective of the Japanese criminal justice system because we're so used to a case being put together for months and months prior to it going to trial. This seems like crime is committed. We're going to court tomorrow. Let's see if the they can figure it out. Right. 
Three days. They got three days to figure it out, and the judge can't wait to bang that gavel and go get lunch. Like, is the way that it plays. Like, I don't want to be here. I'm basically think, as you say, Arnie, it feels like I've already decided you're guilty unless your defense lawyer can do something amazing. And I guess Phoenix does because he like calls on like Mia's ghost and like just so so much crazy supernatural stuff going on here. But in the end, he's not only able to say Maya didn't do it, he's going to say you did it. <laughs> like the guy that's across the street is the guilty person and he's going to get arrested. And we have this detective, Dick Gumshoe, who's going to haul him away and try to get answers. And Red will be basically whacked. Red will first be like wearing this duct tape gag with a zipper on it. And then at some point, someone feeds him poisoned rice and he's dead in his jail cell. <laughs> he was poisoned so hard that one of his shoes came off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the, the point that they make is this guy, and again, this is to his credit. He wrote an article 15 years ago saying that the spirit medium was wrong. I'm like, yep, I think that is within questionable, like the fact that we we allowed a man to be prosecuted because the spirit medium said he did it. This journalist is doing us a favor by pointing that out. And then the reason why he had Mia killed was that she was reopening that case and somebody was afraid he'd talk in jail. And so they, they whacked him. We have the idea introduced. There's a mastermind behind it all. That behind these little murders where we have these little killers, there is somebody orchestrating a master plan. And that's who we'll get to at the climax. Did you guys, could you have guessed that who it was at this point? No. We haven't even really dealt with Von Karma much yet. So I don't know how at this point I would have been able to figure any of that out. Yeah, I, I think it would be impossible. But maybe if you're really good, like you watch every murder she wrote and know within like five minutes, like you could do this stuff. But this movie makes you work. And I, I just want to put it out there. I don't think I was in the right mind frame to work as hard as this was going to be. I thought this was going to be lighthearted and fun and bloody. And by this point in the movie, we're 40 minutes in, case one of three, I'm exhausted. I wasn't prepared for how much this movie was going to ask of us mentally, for real. I mean, I had no idea what the game was coming in. I, I honestly thought it was just going to be a lighthearted comedy romp. But no, we are trying to figure out cases here. Uh, it's not just me. I feel very glad to hear that because it is at about the 40 minute mark where I'm realizing what I took as a very light, fun logic game has become a much more complex movie, partially in the way that it's being told. And I don't want to come off as anti-foreign film because I'm not. I do primarily watch American film, but I think some of the problem I have here is the fact that this is subtitled. It's different to absorb information when it's read than when it's heard. And also, subtitles are different than books in that somebody else is determining the pace of your reading. You're reading at the speed of a foreign language, and so some things just flash on the screen and you get it, you you know the words, but are you completely absorbing all of the details? And I feel like that's where I was having some of the problems here. If this were an American movie, possibly even a dub, although I hate dubbed movies, 
Mm, I think it would help to be Japanese. I'll definitely agree with that. I watch a lot of international movies. Not only that, I put closed captioning on everything. Maybe my hearing is going now that I'm entering middle age. But I actually, even when I'm watching television, I'm reading. Because I, I often find that I, that I do miss lines of dialogue that I want to know. So the subtitles were a non-factor for me. But yeah, this movie was hard. To Arnie's point, I, I do find reading subtitles in a movie where visual details are going to be important, it makes it more difficult to take in some of those visual details because I'm, I'm looking at the bottom third rather than the entire screen. Yeah, I did rewind pretty frequently. This movie is a little over two hours and I probably spent four hours watching it. I prefer subtitles on foreign films. I like to hear the original actors' inflections and performances, but I think I've never dealt with a murder mystery through subtitles before and i think that that's a barrier here i think that all three of us found this challenging isn't necessarily a result of this being a challenging movie yeah like what if we had american actors laying on the voices i think that's even more distracting personally i prefer subtitles We'll never know how much the subtitles made it harder to absorb some of this information. So if we have native Japanese listeners and they're sitting here wondering, why are these three having so much trouble understanding it? I think the way the information is delivered to us is very different than if we were to hear it and to just be able to follow the conversations a little bit better. Yeah, but it's also the construction. I want to point out, like, this is the point in the movie where we're getting flashbacks to that original case, that evidence room, the gun going off, and, you know, dream sequences and all of that intercut with the new case. Case number two is going to be that prosecutor, Miles, is now going to be accused of killing someone on a rowboat at midnight at Christmas. And, like, how that all, like, comes out, it takes a really long time to parse out a fairly simple switchamaroo. What we're told is that Miles, you know, his dad was the one that got killed. The man that got fingered, his lawyer, uh, Robert Hammond, has new evidence he wants to share with him. Meet me at midnight on Christmas at a rowboat and I'll tell you everything. Uh, you know, maybe I would have gone with a gun, but like this guy foolishly goes out there and then finds this weirdo shooting at him at point blank range and missing both times and then jumping into the water. And when he gets to ashore, there's a dead body and people have seen him with that gun and he's in jail. Okay, so was the dead body Hammond? Yes. The lawyer from 15 years ago who basically told the man that the psychic accused of doing it, just go with that. We're going to call you crazy and you won't have to spend much time in prison. That guy was killed and an imposter got on a rowboat with Miles. That was a little bit murky. Like, I understood that there was an imposter. Oh, not a little. <laughs> not a little. A lot murky. Yeah, I understood that somebody was impersonating Hammond, but I wasn't sure that it was Hammond that was dead on shore previously. But that does kind of un unravel as we go on. Mm -hmm. and, and while all of this is happening, this is basically Miles in jail. Phoenix is coming to him saying, you defended me in the past. I'll do it for you now. I love the fact that Miles is like, yeah, you're no good. I don't want you. <laughs> but like, what can he do? And then like, we're cutting to, again, there's some strange furry holding an umbrella. Like, what is going on in this court? 
he's the mascot for the police. I know he's like a doorman. He's opening the doors and taking people into the courtroom. I think if we understood the system of justice, we could appreciate the satirical choices being made. Instead, it just feels like nonsense. It feels like do anything you want craziness. This is where my FOMO of not understanding other cultural relevances <laughs> kicks in. Because yes. I know I do know Japanese culture. They do make a lot of mascots for things. But, like, is it funny that the police have a mascot? Or is that true? I don't know. I'm with you on, on my curiosity. It's why I can't appreciate the comedy here. Because it's leaving me too many questions about reality versus satire. I'm going to guess the police don't have a mascot just because... All the movies I've seen from Japan or in Japan, I've never seen the blue furry before. I, who knows? I, I, again, won't, I'm not going to weigh in on that. But in the middle of all of this, all of this <laughs> is taking place on Lake Gord. And every time that we have a court case, we're, of course, going to have Larry Butts ruining something. Last time <laughs> he gave the thinker toy that proved to be the murder weapon. This time, he's a street vendor. He sells his toys along this lake and decides the best way to attract attention is to have a giant inflatable. In this case, the steel samurai that the woman in, in the court case was the producer of. I love that the steel samurai is mistaken because it deflates into the lake. It's mistaken for a Loch Ness-like monster that they call Gordy. Yes, this is, again, you really go down some weird tangents here. This is what happens. Phoenix is, like, trying to solve the DL6 case. Like, he's trying to think about something that happened 15 years ago. Maya, the psychic's daughter, who's also psychic, comes running in. You got to see the news. And it's that, yeah, there's a Loch Ness monster that's happening. And, oh, by the way, the second story, in the smaller print, is your best friend is standing accused of murder on that lake. Are they interconnected? Only in the sense that Larry created this distraction that now has a lot of people around the lake's perimeter with cameras. And that photographic evidence becomes the substance of the trial. I love when they get that woman on the stand and she's testifying about when the photos happened and Phoenix pokes holes in her story and finally she's just like, I just wanted to be involved in a murder case. Mm, yeah, yeah. She wanted to get famous by photographing the Loch Ness Monster, or in this case, Gordy. And since that turned out to be a, a deflating balloon, this was the way to make a dollar off a photo. And she's like ripping off her outfit and really upset about it. That was a laugh out loud moment for me. What's her name? Lotta something? Lotta Hart. <laughs> this is what my wife who grew up in Ireland would call a knacker. You know, mm. <laughs> somebody, you know, like a gypsy or somebody who is kind of on the edge of society, you know, but she's even her subtitles. They're putting a lot of Z's instead of S's to her speech. Mm -hmm. I noticed that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, she, she apparently has a camera set up that is sound activated. So her photographs will become key to this trial. This is where, again, you got to really pay attention to this. She is there at midnight looking for Gordy the monster. And she claims she saw this go down with her binoculars, but she wasn't, you know, Phoenix puts back, you weren't looking at men on a boat, you were looking for a monster. She said, well, I took photos after midnight, which would be Christmas, and photo one is man A holding a gun, pointing it at man B, and photo two is man B still there and man A 
not. But it's sound activated and took a picture at a gunshot that happened 45 minutes earlier. On Christmas Eve, 11.30, there was also a sound. The picture it took looked like nothing was going on. It was too foggy to see what was going on and creates the idea that the original murder happened at 11.30 Christmas Eve and someone restaged it for her camera on Christmas. Which explains that Hammond was killed at 11.30 and then the staging took place at 12.15. Right. But the way we find some of this out is crazy. I mean, we're talking scenarios that I don't think the old TV show Night Court would consider plausible in that Phoenix brings his friend Larry up as a witness to this murder case. And Larry's going to be like, oh, I was hearing a radio DJ. And the DJ said, there's only 30 minutes left of Christmas Eve. And that's going to be... I don't know, but I like to think one of you would lie for me if I was a lawyer and needed a false witness in a case that one of you would volunteer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but if your alibi is that I heard everything even though I was wearing earbuds, like this is terrible. But then again, look at the prosecution. The prosecution's putting up a witness that's an amnesiac. Like this whole thing is crazy making. A homeless man that like will get into his real story. But yes, the prosecution, the man that's never lost a case, says, I'm going to produce this vagrant. They call him a boathouse curator to, in this country, we call them homeless people. Like, was there at the time of the 1230 shootings. He's the one that looked out the window and can pinpoint there's a body there and there's Miles. And, and he's holding a gun. And why he did that, all of that, hold on to that thought. He disappears, he runs away, they go to his boathouse and find plans written down on paper and get tasered and everything happens that's crazy. I just want to say, look, this movie is really hard to follow. I don't even think it's particularly good. But every Takashi Miike movie has one terrific scene. I've never seen one that didn't have one moment of sterling brilliance. And when Phoenix Wright has to put Polly the Parrot on the stand as a witness. <laughs> I am cracking my shit up the whole time. I love that scene. They say never act with kids or animals because it'll ruin your shots, but this parrot <laughs> is super photogenic. I mean, it leans in. It knows when to get on his shoulder. Oh, yeah. His interplay with that bird when it gets on his shoulder and all that. Like, you can tell the actor was scared, but he's trying to play along. <laughs> it's hilarious. I feel like I've seen this before. I can't remember where, but I've seen a lawyer show or a crime show where the parrot is saying things from the time of the murder. Oh, sure. And the parrot is a witness in this crime. or ev They always say a witness when, in fact, I would dare say evidence <laughs> in the crime. Yeah, you can't really take his testimony, although that's what they're doing. They're literally like transcribing, I'm hungry. And like, it's just, again, I love this scene. I really like, I was sitting there, not a smile on my face going, what the fuck? And then this happened and I had tears running down my face laughing. I can't say that I found that scene that uproarious, but it was a stalling tactic because yes, Yanni Yogi has disappeared and the judge is ready to call a verdict of guilty here and phoenix wright has to do whatever he can to try to stall until they can get yogi back well you keep calling him yanni but we don't know that yet 
We just know him as the boathouse curator that has been brought back into the court with his birdcage, and the bird called him out as Yanni. And so now we know he's the guy that killed Miles Dad 15 years ago, or at least that's what, you know, the verdict was. And now Yanni is saying, I did not. I killed my lawyer at the lake at Christmas. I'm guilty of that. But that's only the reason why I did that was he made me say I was guilty when I wasn't 15 years ago. His law firm didn't want to risk losing a case. It was all about image. And so he said, you're crazy. I had to live a scandalized life and it drove my wife suicidal. Whose name happened to be Polly, the same as the parrot. And now he believes his dead wife talks through the bird. I have two questions that I did not understand in this movie, and maybe they're really obvious. But Yanni has been pretty much homeless and distraught ever since his plea of guilty by insanity, even though he was not the murderer. Yeah. But some anonymous person sends him some hydrochloric acid and a gun, the hydrochloric acid so he can burn his fingerprints off, and then the gun so he can get his revenge against Hammond. Who sent the gun? The same mastermind that told Red White to kill Mia. There's an unseen person that is masterminding all of this that we're going to expose with the third case. I mean, we've talked about it. So it is Von Karma who did that. Correct. Von Karma said, burn your fingerprints off so that they won't know it's Yanni. And then I'll be able to say that, yeah, Miles is guilty of killing this lawyer. Okay. So that was one of two things I just didn't put together there. Nothing here to me is obvious. Like it is when you extract it. When you watch the anime, it feels like you're watching Scooby-Doo. Okay, I get it. When you're watching this... It is labyrinthian in trying to figure out. And by design, again, I want to say it seems to be the aim of this filmmaker to make it really challenging to know what the hell is going on when there's a simple answer for a lot of it. Well, and it could have been handled with exposition as as Phoenix is, you know, culminating his case at the very end, you know, the accusation that he's leveling. They could have said, you know, we were in the boat. We saw the evidence. You're the one who planted the gun and gave Yanni the sulfuric acid. But maybe that was cut. I don't know. Maybe we're just supposed to realize that's what happened. They don't connect every dot. They don't connect half the dots. They want you to do a lot of that work. But I love the judge. The judge is like, okay, um, that's fine. You're going to go free, Miles. But now I want, a, I want an answer to this 15-year-old case. Like, he can just produce it, like, snap. All right, so let's solve this. Phoenix is going to solve the DL6 case in three days. It's not necessarily the judge is demanding it. It's that Miles has confessed. Miles is like, I'm the real killer from all these years ago. And so Miles is going to go to jail again unless Phoenix can find evidence against it. See, I didn't think that came out until they started looking at the evidence. I wasn't sure. Yeah, again, the way that this is cut, at some point, suddenly, Miles is back on the stand saying, when I was a child and went to the evidence room, I threw a gun, it bounced off the back of Yanni, and accidentally discharged and went into my dad's back, and I have a lot of guilt about killing my father. 
And now Phoenix will be trying to expose that as not true. They have a gun. It was discharged twice. He has got to find who shot or got the bullet from that second discharge. And it's not apparent that he figures this out before going back into the courtroom. He is literally just stalling until inspiration or evidence literally falls to the floor for him to find something to actually provide evidence. Ghosts. I mean, I kid you not, like he's got to pray to the thinker and the thinker plants that idea. As promised, the toy uh, gives you the light bulb that allows you to to solve the case. Uh, uh, Mia's ghost appears and basically, here's the thing. If you recall, she went down to the evidence room. She got the bullet that was extracted from Greg's back. And so that has ballistic markings on it. And so she wanted to, to keep it safe. And the way that she thought to do that was to remove the clock parts from the thinker, put the bullet in there, and then give it to her psychic sister who loves trinkets, and she would never know the wiser that she was holding on to evidence that people were looking for. But Mia was killed first. And so now that thinker, yes, by complete happenstance, that former clock statue novelty toy falls on the ground and smashes and they have the bullet that they can pin on Manfred Van Karma. He was shot by that stray bullet. Miles shot him. He didn't shoot his father. Went to his shoulder. The second bullet, he picked up the gun and killed Greg. Because he didn't want to be exposed for tampering evidence. So this bullet in the thinker is the bullet pulled out of Greg. It's not the bullet Greg was examining. No, there are two bullets, and one of them is actually still in Manfred. He's like, yeah, I took a sick day the the day that this happened, but you'll not find a medical chart with me having a bullet removed. You gotta love this. Larry Butts, like, takes a metal detector and goes out on the lake to find garbage, carries that into the courtroom, and Phoenix can just go grab it and, like, search the guy's body until they find the other bullet. I literally didn't think that they would use a metal detector. I thought one of the bailiffs might have one of those wands, like when you walk into someplace. (laughs) Yeah, sure, that could work. That would be more logical, Arnie. We don't like logic. We like cray-cray. But there's something I don't understand. This is the second thing. So Von Karma has a bullet in his shoulder. Put there by a child on accident. Yes, but he didn't want to be connected to the murder so he never told anyone the bullet just stayed in the meat of the shoulder and we've got phoenix saying well let's get that bullet out it's going to match the ballistics of the gun well the gun's gone okay let's get that bullet out now that i found this bullet in the thinker it's going to match the ballistics of the thinker and Von Karma's like, I'm not consenting to you getting this bullet out. It's You can't even prove there's a bullet in me. This is all conjecture. How many times do I have to tell you that this is all about evidence? That's something out of the game, too, is you just keep getting told it's evidence, evidence. But then Phoenix has the bullet from the thinker and says, look, it's going to match this other bullet. He tosses the bullet in the air. These advanced machines scan the bullets for the ballistics and then it comes up with a zero percent match to another bullet it's to the bullet from the case 15 years ago that he used as evidence to match the other bullet which is in his shoulder but 
not known to anybody else. So he manufactured both bullets. Both bullets in that old case were fake and would not match that gun would they test that gun for rifling. Yeah, I think he's right. And again, I get confused on this, but when we start seeing screens of 0% match and 100% match, it goes back to what I heard Justin asking at the beginning. What was that whole case about? Because something was going on with the bullets. I don't really know, but Von Karma was behind it all, and now that has been exposed. That's I'm just going to make it that simple. I don't quite get what happened, but yes. Okay, I just can't follow the second bullet. It's it, This is getting JFK magic bullet confusing to me. It's like, I just didn't understand the ballistics where having a 0% match proved something. I also think there's another problem here. Of like, let's look who was in the evidence room. If there was a third man there that got shot and then picked up a gun and killed. All right, so one guy's dead. Greg is dead and the little boy like got knocked out. But there is Yanni the bailiff. And like he must have seen this super prosecutor put the bullet in the defense lawyer. I think we're to believe that the gun hitting him in the back of the head knocked him out. Okay, so he was also knocked out. All right. Of course he was. That totally makes sense. <laughs> Thank you for joining. Now playing, figuring out what the hell happened in a movie. Yeah. Cue the confetti. Uh, hit the lights. Applause for everyone. Because Edgeworth is not guilty of the crime that has been probably making him so sullen all these years. He kind of seemed like a jerk. And he was even told that. Like, you'll never have a great career because nobody likes you. Well, I guess if you thought you killed your dad, you might have a chip or two on your shoulder. Now he can be friends with Phoenix, thank him for repaying the favor from childhood. And even Misty, again, like, I love the fact that she circles back and goes, why did my mom name somebody that wasn't the killer as the killer? And we're told that she was repeating what Greg wanted her to, that it was a cover story to prevent Miles from going to jail. Yeah, they use the word lie, but I think that might be somewhat of a translation problem because I don't think Greg was lying. It's what he or his spirit would have been the last thing he saw was his son with a gun in his hand. So he would just assume that that's where the bullet came from. And here, I thought the spirit medium was naming the person who would do the murder of Hammond many, many years later. Like, the medium saw the wrong murder. Right. We get a couple, just a few, like, trippy moments of, like, buildings sinking into the water and, like, green smoke and all of that. But, yeah, you do kind of see, from spirit medium perspective, why she might have created that confusion and named the wrong person. But, again... I think everyone is completely forgiven for any confusion they might have. I didn't even understand that stuff with the ballistics at the end. You explained that to me, Justin. There's a lot here that you're right. It would be boring. It's why I tend to not like legal dramas. When people are grandstanding and talking too much, it's not very cinematic. They've solved that problem by making it absolutely incoherent. And things are always happening all the time. And you're never following what the hell's going on. But there's a new trial. We get an epilogue, and I don't know if this is from a later game, but there's some kind of ninja guitarist going up on the stand, and Larry's already selling jamming ninja super cakes and got his new uh, guitar inflatable up to profit off of this. Presumably, they thought they had sequels to go here, but this is the end of Ace Attorney as a live-action franchise. Yeah, I don't know if that was 
trying to kick off sequels or if it just kind of feels like the way some movies end and it's like the continuing adventures or whatever. Yeah, life goes on. These two will become adversaries. Even though Miles has sort of begrudgingly acknowledged Phoenix has got game, they will face off in court in front of the cameras. Yes, I agree. It works as a conclusion to a standalone movie. But again, I think the hope would have been to keep adapting those sequel games. Didn't happen. So Justin Stewart, pass your verdict (laughs) on Ace Attorney. Justin. Ah, well, this is all going to come down to evidence, right? Was was it evident that this movie was enjoyable? I don't know. I guess that depends on who you are. I mean, if you're the type of person who does enjoy a procedural type of movie with a little bit of comedy, I think this could be enjoyable for you. I mean, I, I actually enjoyed watching this movie. As, as much as it sounded like we struggled through it, it was enjoyable. I mean, we've sat through much, much worse tripe in the arcade, so... This is something that I actually enjoyed watching, even though it was on the long side. I don't know that it needed to have over two hours of runtime to tell the story. But if you think about the story, I feel like they told it the right way. Giving it to us in pieces, and as we proceeded through these cases that were going backwards to figure out what actually happened, made it enjoyable. If it was laid out more linearly, the way we discussed it, I think it would have come off kind of rote and not pay off at the end. So I did enjoy the way that the filmmakers decided to tell this story. But if you've played this game in the past and enjoyed it and have become endured to these characters, but for some reason never sat down to watch the movie, I think there's probably a lot for you here. But if you're just into movies, I don't know that there's a lot for me to recommend either. It's not super special. There are some genuine laughs. I mean, we talked about the police mascot running in to stop the judge from banging the gavel and he gets his hand hit. To me, that wasn't the funny part. It was a few moments later when somebody comes back into the courtroom and the the, the mascot's still hanging off the judge's stand and then falls to the ground and his head falls off. So that got a chuckle out of me. There were some good parts here. So at the end of the day, my recommendation is, is I didn't hate it. It's something that I enjoyed watching and I may watch again in the future. So I'm going to give it a light recommend from my end. And if you like the game, I think there's a lot for you here. So go ahead and watch it if you haven't seen it. Stuart. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the fact that this is all based on a video game. And I, on some level, I get that. I think I've mentioned Scooby-Doo, cartoonish, kids-oriented, G-rated. But here's the thing. You watch Scooby-Doo, it's easy to spot that formula, right? It's not the shady guy that has a motive for doing the crime. It's the kindly shopkeeper down the street that's really did it. And if it weren't for the pesky kids, they would have gotten away with it. We know how that works. We watched uh, it all the time. But if you took three of those episodes, cut them all up and threw them up like confetti and had them come down and watched them in that order, that's this experience. Like the reason why you can't figure out what's going on is because they're telling three different cases simultaneously. And that is not a kid's challenge. This is not something that children would enjoy, despite the G rating. So here's the thing. I praise this exact technique in Yakuza, but that in part had to do with the fact that I found its outrageousness hilarious. This movie did not find hilarious. I found it worked that moment, that brilliant moment with the bird, a couple little tiny small moments, but there was a lot of somewhat of a chore to get through. And except for a few moments here and there, I don't think it worked. I think watching it linearly as that anime, like I did, was more satisfying than watching this diced up Scooby-Doo season. 
And so I'm going to have to say at the very least, it's an objection to the idea that this is the best video game movie ever made. It is not. I've seen better in this arcade, but it's also not the worst. I'm sort of on a, on a line. I could tip either way, but if I was this unsatisfied watching it, I'm going to have to say not recommend. And I was sort of torn. I did feel like Justin said this movie did not need to run over two hours. Even though I'll put it out there, if you play the game beginning to end, you're looking at like 20 hours. So it's taking it down a great deal from the actual game itself. But it's a little bit long and a little bit convoluted. But by the same token, while there's certain things I didn't get out of it, I also feel like the movie just kind of moves along with a great sense of fun because of the -the over-the-top comedic performances and the way everybody looks. Even the stoic characters are played for comedy in an anime kind of way. Nothing here is taken seriously. And so I was kind of on the fence, and when I am, I always look for that one thing that'll either push me to a recommend or a not recommend. What is it I really like or what is it I really hate that can split the difference? And you know what I really like is the sense of style of this movie, the way they were able to make people look like video game characters, and those crazy computers and screens that fly all around the courtroom and everything. It reminded me a bit of a high-tech Terry Gill kind of situation and so I think that is enough to say you know it's kind of worth checking out I can give it a weak recommend but yeah it's not the best video game movie to me and again that's very well maybe a cultural reason it's also I like the game but I'm not enamored with the game. I was, again, kind of annoyed by the game sound effects that were so repetitive. And so neither the game nor the movie is life-changing, but both were kind of fun to spend a little bit of time with. I'm kind of surprised that this game hasn't made some bit of a resurgence in the age of browser games, Facebook games, more mobile type of games. But Yeah, I would play the game. I don't think I'd watch any more anime. I, I, you know, there's a couple more seasons for me to take in. I didn't mind it, but I'm not seeking it out. You could get the remastered trilogy for iOS or Android right now. <laughs> right. And we're going to keep on the video game path. It's, uh, we're just going to steam through, basically. We want to get, knock out the rest of them. Next week, we've reached a big one, frankly. I don't know if the movie had that much impact, but everyone seems to love Assassin's Creed. I've never played it. I'm familiar with it, and I haven't played it, but it's definitely crossed over into the action figure world, so I'm I'm aware of the characters just from the toy shelf. Well, I have played it so that we have some experience for the review, and I must say I have enjoyed what I've played of the game far more than I'm anticipating enjoying this Michael Fassbender bomb. Yeah, I saw the movie. I've seen the movie, haven't played the game. You played the game, haven't seen the movie. Uh, We'll have both done our homework and come back at you next week for the whole experience. Meanwhile, this Friday, our Harry Potter series continues. The end is in sight. We are doing the sixth of eight Harry Potter movies with Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. It is our gold donation series going on right now. You can find the details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. 
And don't forget, whether you donate or not, on Thursdays at booksandnachos.com, our sister podcast, Brock Stewart and I are reviewing the Harry Potter novels. So you can hear that for free. And then if you choose to support our show, you can hear all the reviews through Half-Blood Prince this Friday with a new show coming out each Friday. So Justin Stewart, thank you for joining me. And if there's no objection, then game over. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Come back to nowplayingpodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. This podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created or produced the film or game discussed in this podcast. Now Playing is an independent movie review podcast with no affiliation with any company involved in the publishing, creating, or distribution of that film or game. The film and all music and clips used are the property of the original copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2022. All rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Right. And and interesting, too, to note that not only a jet, sonic boom, I hope it is, maybe it's Russia. You did see they prepped their nukes, right? <laughs> I mean... Objection! Starring Hiroki Nariyama. <laughs> this is always my favorite part. Mariki <laughs> Kiritani. I do better with Japanese names than I do with, like, Italian or something like that. I think you should do the a whole international film. Like, I, would, I just want you to do that. I want you to read the titles of all international movies. Takumi Saito. If that's not their name, it should be. Objection!